Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This episode is uh, one of my favorites that I've recorded for this uh, series, for the Twin Peaks Cinema series in general. And it comes right in the middle of this three-month uh, cycle that I'm doing that started in April with Belladonna of Sadness, will conclude in June, called Traumatic Transformations, where I look at films that deal with traumas that individuals and communities go through and how those often take on a sort of fable-like quality, I guess you could say. This film is the least fantastical of the three, but it still has that element of the Pied Piper that we'll talk about. So uh, we'll get into that in the discussion itself. Uh, I'd also note there this was originally part of a Patreon episode a few months ago, and there's another 10 or 15 minutes or so of material talking about the book and uh, also just recommending some other podcasts that also discuss this film if you want more. So you can check that link out in the show notes. As far as my other podcasts go in the month since I put up my last episode, I just have a couple to note on the Lost in the Movies feed. I started to focus on Christopher Nolan with uh, the film The Prestige. And on Lost in Twin Peaks, I brought that podcast back a couple weeks ago to cover Firewalk with me and the missing pieces. That's actually ongoing now. In fact, the episode going up today is, I think, probably the strongest of that whole cycle called uh, Firewalk With Me Mysteries, looking at the uh, question of Laura Palmer and what her death means in the context of that film. And that relates very much to The Sweet Hereafter, as we'll discuss in this episode. Who are you? I'm a lawyer. I realize this is an awful time, but it's important that we talk. Why do I need a lawyer? You leave the people of this town alone. I won't lie. I don't want you to lie. So you think someone else caused the accident, Mr. Stevens? I promise that I will pursue and reveal who is responsible for this tragedy. Would you be likely to sue me if I was to beat you right now? All I'm saying is, let me direct your rage. What is it that you want me to do for you, Mr. Stevens? And we must make them pay. You remember this? I do now. From Adam Agoyan. The director of Exotica, and based on the novel by Russell Banks, comes a haunting journey into the sweet hereafter. What you just heard is the Canadian trailer. Presenting the film is a proud cultural project. But in the U.S. trailer, which is more interested in teasing the melodrama to entice a commercial audience, the narrator intones, who can you trust when everyone has a secret? And that is definitely a Twin Peaks question. So we can start with that. I do want to talk about this film on its own a little bit before I get into the Twin Peaks connections. Some of them will be evident as I, you know, describe the film as well. But it is true that in this film... In Twin Peaks, everyone has, I wrote down a racket. I don't know if that's exactly right, because um, a lot of this isn't sort of by cynical design. These aren't 
criminals that doesn't have the sort of seedy underbelly that Twin Peaks has. But they all definitely have they they have secrets. They have their dark sides. They have their sort of illicit activity. Everyone, uh, not everyone, but several people are kind of entangled with other people in ways that are reminiscent of Twin Peaks. And uh, with that in mind, a connection is obvious right away. And in addition to that, the very premise of the film is completely Peaksian. We have a stranger arriving in a small town in response to a tragedy that's consumed the cons- the whole community. And as that stranger goes around, this outsider uh, talking to the different people, it sort of raises the drama up a notch as well. In fact, Slavo Žižek called this film arguably the film about the impact of trauma on a community. So when you consider Twin Peaks as the show about that impact, you know, you can see that there as well. So to talk about the, the the film, I mean, we can just start with the description of what it is, which is a school bus goes off the road in the dead of winter in a Canadian rural town. Fourteen children die. Uh, one child survives. The bus driver survives. And a lawyer comes to town. His name is Mitchell Stevens. He's played by Ian Holm. And he is looking to get a class action lawsuit going and getting as many people kind of enlisted in this as he can. Meanwhile, he's dealing with his own personal drama in that his daughter is a drug addict. She calls him from time to time from pay phones, telling him that, uh, sort of taunting him really with her, her, uh, her life and what's going on, uh, at one point telling him that she doesn't, I don't think she says she has HIV, but she says, I tested positive. You know what that means? And, just really tormenting him with this knowledge. And and uh, there's some sense that he was maybe not the best father and she's punishing him in some way. But uh, this thread is also running through the film as well. Now, all of that makes it sound more straightforward than it is. Uh, in fact, the story is told completely out of order in a way that feels very natural to the point where I didn't really remember that that was how it was told. And even watching it, I wasn't, I, I didn't feel like I was watching something fragmented, like, um, not Memento, what's that film, like 21 Grams or something like that. It just, it flows very naturally, I think, because despite being told out of order, the emotional connections between the material are clear. It's it's evident why we're cutting from one moment to another. And I couldn't even really describe back to you the the way it unfolds, where each piece of the puzzle comes in it would actually be interesting to break it down that way because as i said you almost reassemble it afterwards in your head and you could ask then well why even bother to to tell it in that in that way if if you're getting something linear out of it anyway but there is there's just something to be said for placing each emotional dramatic piece where it comes and uh and it's powerful for that reason so for example you know we'll have a scene where the Ian Holm character, where where Mitchell is at a motel looking for uh, some some parents whose child was killed, and we have a very you know, a very close shot of a calendar just to make sure we don't miss it that says December nineteen ninety five, and then we cut immediately from that to a TV screen in the back of a seat in an airplane that has a news segment on it, which says November 26 or something like that, 1997, which is actually even after the film came out, I think around the time it went into wide release. So they were pitching it to that. 
but, you know, two years have gone by in that moment. And then, of course, we return later back to him in that town visiting the people. And uh, we just keep switching back and forth between those two timelines. But in addition to that, we're also going back and looking at what the town was like before the accident happened. We're looking at the day of the accident when everything was going on and the the night, you know, the, the couple days before as well. But there's footage that takes place clearly in like the summer. So all of this is is going on, these different threads. And uh, Adam Igoyan, the uh, director, uh, appeared on Charlie Rose at the time, which is an interesting venue just because of some things we'll talk about more with this film, of, of course, with what happened with Charlie Rose later. Um, I also, just as a side note, after reading Mark Frost's interview book where he talks about going on Charlie Rose and how whenever the camera wasn't on him, he would pay no attention to the guest and just be looking at his notes. And uh, he was like, it was one of the most alienating interview experiences I've had. And I, you know, I I never thought, you know, I guess he did a good job as a TV performer because I never noticed that quality before. But now whenever I watch a Charlie Rose interview, all I can think is like when the guest is on, are they just like, why is this guy not looking? Like, what is he doing? And you can see that quality in him, um, which, you know, that is a tangent, but maybe it does relate to some of the stuff we're going to talk about, about things going on on multiple levels and uh, as well as, uh, uh, you know, abusive uh, power, abusive uh, figures in power, too, obviously, is going to come into this film. But I want to save that discussion more for the end, because that's an element of relation to Twin Peaks that is worth kind of isolating and ending on, especially... Uh, as I'm first airing this coverage for patrons around the time that I'll be covering Firewalk with me. So there's a strong thread there. I'll just get that off at the at the outset here. But to go back to the point, what he was saying on Charlie Rose was, uh, you can really get into the psyche of a piece by understanding the character's relationship to time and then finding a way of using the structure of filmmaking to explore that and to get into their subconscious. Filmmaking is like dreaming, I find which is a fascinating statement, obviously very Lynchian in a way, and interesting to consider alongside Twin Peaks, where it increasingly does get more uh, twisted in its use of time and uh, hopping back and forth, particularly by the return, but even when we get to Firewalk with me and they're doing a prequel. Now, before that, it's laid out very meticulously, day by day, each episode a day, and that makes a stark contrast to The Sweet Hereafter, where from the very beginning, we're getting this convoluted uh, storytelling. So that in itself is an interesting point of contrast. I would also note that uh, stylistically, this film is quite different from Twin Peaks. Even though superficially there's some similarities in the in the broad strokes, uh, it's a slowly paced film in many ways, very intense, focused on human interactions and letting those play out. Uh, but there's a more, uh, I would almost say it's more Bergman-esque in a way, which in itself provides a little bit of a thread to Twin Peaks, because I think the pilot in particular, those scenes in Sarah's room where she's just sitting there, and she's being she's been sedated, and she's telling the investigators, and you hear a clock ticking in the background, telling them what happened the night that Laura died. Uh, in that moment, uh, I always, for some reason, think of Ingmar Bergman. Like there's just a Bergman-esque quality to the to the way it's shot and the way it's paced. Um, and and there's a similar scene in the suite hereafter where they go to the bus driver's house. Mitchell goes and visits 
Dolores Driscoll, the bus driver, is played by Gabrielle Rose. Wonderful performance. She's this quirky sort of Midwestern twangy, although I think she's everyone in the film, I believe, for the most part, is Canadian. So maybe I shouldn't say Midwestern, but uh, she definitely has that kind of Minnesota cadence to her voice and a kind of lovable homespun figure who loved all the kids on the bus and is very distraught over their deaths. And, and that scene reminded me of the scene with Sarah. So there, there is that kind of tie there, I suppose. And also when he goes, when Mitchell goes to her house and he's carrying the tea, the tray of tea to her room to sit down and talk to her, reminded me a lot of the visit to the log lady. So there are those little similarities there, but just overall the way it's handled, uh, Lynch, I think, stretches things out to a point where they're uncomfortable, where they're funny, and Iguion does not really do that in this film. Like, there's a there's a humorous scene in the beginning where there's the uh, Mitchell is stuck in a car wash, and uh, definitely some metaphorical overtones to that with his with his the way his life is going. He's just stuck in the car wash. He can't get out. He tries to open the door. The soap is spraying in on him. It's like a situation I've never thought of before. What do you do when you're stuck in a car wash? Like, how do you get help? He calls an operator, and it's it's funny, but it isn't. If Lynch was doing this, the scene would go on for like five minutes. It would get extremely awkward, uh, you know, beyond just being funny awkward. You'd feel awkward watching it. Then it would go into humor again. You know, that's that sort of thing. So this is not, I just want inter- I, I, I to stress that point. This is, it has, um, like Lynch, that, that sense of pace, that sense of focusing on the moment um, that many art films have, whether they're, you know, completely off to the side esoteric art films or more sort of mainstream narrative art films. I think that's something that most great directors will have, um, many great directors, maybe an Oliver Stone or or Jean-Luc Godard is more fast-paced, but you know, that that sense of time unfolding is is something that marks a lot of great directors, but there are distinctions as well. Now, the setting of the film is one of the most interesting connections to me, uh, the fact that it's in this small town, this rural area with the mountains looming overhead, beautiful, wonderful use of this sort of mountainous, hilly landscape out there. I believe it was shot in, I don't know if it was Western Canada or Western Ontario, which would be a whole different uh, part of the country. But uh, there's, you know, there, there's just... A, a beautiful quality to it that is very reminiscent of the way the Pacific Northwest is shot in Twin Peaks. That said, there are some notable differences as well. One thing I noticed is that uh, unlike uh, Twin Peaks, there seems to be much more outdoor focus in terms of the action that's taking place. Uh, In Twin Peaks, there tends to be a division between like the establishing shots in the pilot and the action, which often takes place indoors. The main exceptions I can think of at least during the daytime, are uh, Big Ed's gas farm and the Blue Pine Lodge where Laura's body is found. Other than that, it tends to be sort of a switching between the inside and outside, a tension between the duality, which is right at the heart of Twin Peaks. Whereas in Sweet Hereafter, because so much of it is set around this bus traveling down this winding road, there's so much outside. There's so many parents waiting to drop their kids at the school bus, um, the father following, winding behind there. And uh, so there's there's more of a sense of the out of these characters being present in the outdoors and even with Mitchell going from place to place parking his car walking around now that said a lot of the actual um, action or drama in the film does take place indoors as well 
Um, similarly to Twin Peaks, you get a sense of all of these characters living in these isolated domiciles. And in fact, a, a point of contrast where uh, Twin Peaks has something that uh, Sweet Sweet Hereafter doesn't really have as much. Uh, there's much more. There, there's many more indoor communal spaces in Twin Peaks. Um, neither Twin Peaks nor Sweet Hereafter really has a lot of outdoor communal locations, but uh, Twin Peaks has the the Roadhouse. It has the Double R Diner. Um, it has what else? Um, there's another location I know I'm thinking of, and it's it's uh, oh the the Great Northern, of course. All of those events that they hold there. So you have these spaces where everybody can gather together. In uh, Sweet Hereafter, it's a community really coming apart and not having, literally not having a place to come together on screen in a, a physical space that is really conjuring up how these characters are coming apart themselves. I think the only communal spaces we really see are this small town fair near the beginning of the film, which takes place at a different time of year. That's one of those earlier sequences that's set probably six months before the accident, uh, and it's it's actually a great little scene. They've got a very 90s music uh, sequence playing. I guess this is the moment to introduce one of the major characters in the film, which we'll be talking about a lot, Nicole Burnell, played by Sarah Polly. Fantastic performance in this movie. It's interesting because Ian Holm gives a great performance as well. His is more, I don't know if mannered is exactly the right word. It's not, I don't think it's quite as naturalistic. He's doing something a little different. I would almost compare it to Cheryl Lee and Ray Wise in Firewalk with me, uh, Sarah Polly and Ian Holm in this film, the, the sort of the different acting styles and the way that they both play off of each other and inhabit different spaces within a movie and bring different things to it. I find very interesting uh, the, the, those two uh, those those two sort of parallels there. Although uh, Nicole also has a father in the film, uh, his name is uh, Sam played by Tom McCamus, who that performance isn't so much like Leland. So it's not it's not that the relationships in the in uh, between the Ian Holm and Sarah Pauly in this film are similar to Ray Wise and Cheryl Lee, just the the kind of the acting styles there. So anyways, though, to go back to the from my, the point of my tangent, uh, this, the, this small town fair is one place where we see people, a lot of people, it's where we're first introduced to Dolores and the school bus she drives the kids around on. And then the other location is a sort of a community center, but nobody's really there. There's just a, a few lawyers and a stenographer, somebody, uh, a, a judge figure questioning, taking depositions from from people. So even that space, even that communal space is used ironically. Overall, another uh, show I just want to touch on briefly that reminds me a lot of this film, which I actually cited in one of my uh, capsules about it, was uh, the show Top of the Lake, where you also have, there's actually even a similarity, not just in the outdoor spaces, the mountains and the lake. Uh, interesting to consider, by the way, that uh, Twin Peaks, Top of the Lake, and uh, Sweet Hereafter all staged their central tragedies or inciting incidents over a body of water. And in Sweet Hereafter's case, it's a, it's a frozen body of water where the bus skids out on and then slowly sinks in this horrifying scene beneath the ice in this huge long shot. So that's an interesting point. But also top of the lake, there's a shot in uh, this film where you see all of the pictures of the of these children behind the bus driver as she's crying. They're on the wall behind her all splayed out. And there's a similar display to somewhat different purposes in uh, top of the lake. And uh, there's also the premise of Sweet Hereafter is also very heavily, I shouldn't say reminiscent because I'm sure this other show was quoting it in a way. 
another show that I've written about uses an almost identical premise in uh, at one point. And I won't say which show because it's actually a surprise when that happens. But you'll know what I'm talking about if you know what I've written about and uh, have seen that show. So th- there's many interesting ties to this film in that way. But of course, with Twin Peaks, that came much earlier. And it would be interesting to... Uh, I, this is actually something I didn't contemplate at all until this very moment, the extent to which... Uh, either Russell Banks, who wrote this book or published it in, I believe, 91 or 92. So, like, would have been writing it right around when Twin Peaks was on the air and Adam Egoyan directing it six or seven years later, if if they had Lynch or Twin Peaks in mind at all. It's interesting. Again, I didn't didn't even consider that, but Twin Peaks could have been very much in the zeitgeist when, when Banks was writing the book that this is based on, which I haven't really mentioned yet, but... Uh, I suppose this would be a good point to bring that in. So actually, I read the book before I saw the movie uh, many years ago. I'd gotten it at some sort of used book. I can't remember if it was like Remainders at a bookstore. I was working at a bookstore, I think, and they were just kind of giving away books, and that was one of them. So finally, I read it, uh, really liked it, and I wanted to see the movie and how it was different. The book is written as four almost deposition-style monologues, just written by in first person by four of the characters by uh, the bus driver Dolores by the lawyer Mitchell uh, by the one survivor uh, Nicole who I should mention is is crippled by the accident she comes out having to use a wheelchair this teenager also one of the older children I think on the bus so all the younger ones who almost were in her protection in a way she always kind of looked out for them she babysat for a couple of them she would sit with with one of the more sensitive ones on the bus so she was kind of this this almost this motherly figure to them in a way and she's survived and they're all gone Uh, so she's telling one of the stories and then the other one is the character billy played by bruce greenwood who is having an affair very sort of poignant uh, affair with the wife of the motel owner in the in the film um well i suppose they run it together but he's sort of the more dominant assertive presence in this the one scene we have with that couple so those four characters tell the book each in turn more or less and i think dolores comes back to tell the end again so in the film you know he wanted to uh, igoyan wanted to honor that kind of multiple perspective uh, approach but also tie it into his own work which which had these fragmented timelines and he said that this was one that audiences were able to follow a little more than some of his other films it just it comes off as i said less less experimental in a way more uh just intuitive in storytelling uh, in a storytelling sense but in the book as actually in the pilot script of twin peaks not the pilot as it was shot there is, as Russell Banks describes it, a whole culture that arrives in the town. So media as well as multiple lawyers. And what's interesting in the film is we hear references to that, but we never actually see all of those uh, of those other lawyers. Like there's references to, oh, you know, you're, you're talking to this lawyer, you're talking to that lawyer. If you stick with me, it's this. So he's got all this competition. And uh, we just don't see that in the film at all. It's all off screen. The film is very pared down in a way that almost seems it almost seems like it's being told in symbolic terms rather than literally because wouldn't we see all these other people there and and wouldn't there be reporters overflowing because this is supposed to take place right after the accident but they keep the kind of emotional truth of the devastation at at the forefront rather than trying to replicate what a frenzy would become plus Igoyana's pointed out that the film takes place in Canada there's a little bit of a different news culture there 
or at least as he explains it, there is than there is in America, where every tragedy is sort of hopped on by all of these media hounds. So, uh, so that's something actually that's interesting because, as I said in, in the Twin Peaks pilot, there were supposed to be reporters, a very Mark Frostian kind of thing to conceive of. All these reporters. Uh, outside the sheriff's station yelling and, and if you imagine that pilot with that element it seems so different like it's it's hard it makes twin peaks seem less separate from the world uh, just as it would in the suite hereafter as well sort of alluding to the difference in tone or style of the the two the the book and the film adaptation i found a blog defiant success in which the author of the piece uh, just goes by movie nut 14 i don't know if they use another name as well but that was the name on the account that runs the blog they had a sentence which I thought really captured succinctly what that kind of difference is. They said, Banks' novel is more subtle, whereas Igoyan's film is more haunting. And as I recall the book, and I went and revisited it a little bit, I, I think that's the case. Uh, in a lot of points, Russell Banks has sort of pages of dialogue of the characters talking back and forth, and you have to kind of imagine how they're taking this. Whereas Igoyan, it's more, you know, you can see those moments of silence, those observations between the characters, and you can take it from there. Um, something else, of course, with the film is because it is, you know, a film, because it's shot, because it's visual, it has this gorgeous, wintry, snowy quality that can be evoked on the page, but just the way it's captured in the cinematography of this film, it's such a distinctive element of this movie, and again, creates an interesting point of contrast with Twin Peaks that I think many of the films I discuss with Twin Peaks Cinema do, on Dangerous Ground uh, being one of them, where... Affliction, another Russell Banks adaptation that I'll be discussing, uh, another example there. These films that also take place in the remote small town where the characters are all isolated, they're all kind of, they keep indoors a lot, and yet in Twin Peaks we don't see much snow just because of the climate of where they shot it near Seattle. It doesn't quite snow that much in the winter. It's more misty and rainy and foggy. So it's interesting that we, I sometimes almost think that we should see winter and snow and Twin Peaks like it feel it would feel natural in a way even when they did the parody on that wise guy show with the uh, Lynchboro arc that was a very snowy town as well so it, it would feel natural but it's not something we see in Twin Peaks I always find that point of contrast uh, intriguing um, something else about the book versus the film that is very striking is uh, that the script actually drops a cine or the, the film because it was it was initially in the script, and then they dropped it. It leaves out this cinematic device that was in the book, which is ending with a demolition derby. So the irony of this town, which has been grieving this destruction of this bus with all their children on it, gets this kind of catharsis watching the annual demolition derby of all these cars being destroyed. And I almost think maybe the bus is in there. I, I need to reread it. Uh, I definitely am going to reread this now again after watching this film. I sort of wet my appetite for the book again. But yeah, so it's this it's this big spectacle that was immediately axed from the movie and then at the same time Igoyan brought in a literary device which is the use of the Pied Piper poem uh, sprinkled throughout it's a book that uh, the Sarah Pauli character is uh, reading to two of the kids who are going to die on the bus not necessarily the next day but within a short time of this incident where she's babysitting them and they use this book in a number of interesting ways which we'll get to but the interesting thing about it as a contrast to taking out the demolition derby is russell banks feels that he couldn't have used this device on the page it would just feel too obvious and wrong and on the nose in a way where it's it's much more poetic in the film so there's a cinematic device which was in the book and not in the movie 
and he doesn't think would work in the movie and a literary device which is the vice versa in the film and not in the book because it wouldn't work there the pied piper idea works on several levels first of all just to evoke this kind of fairy tale medieval setting that uh, Iguillon really wanted for this film he didn't want it to feel like a rip from the headlines gritty 90s vision of of rural life he wanted it to have this kind of timeless almost allegorical feeling to it so sprinkling the the Pied Piper, the illustrations and the words uh, throughout, because we hear the narration of the Pied Piper at many points throughout the film. And even the music, I think I mentioned, has a medieval flair to it. So there's there's that motif running throughout. Personally, though, I, I've always just found this story fascinating from the time I was a little kid and disturbing. I, I was always, I was, I loved fairy tales as a little kid. And, uh, I was most fascinated and disturbed by the ones in which, like, children are the victims in some way. So in this one, it's particularly unusual because, in a sense, the children are actually uh, a reward. They get to go off to this happy place, and it's their parents who are left behind, uh, horrified and grieving. And the I, I wonder if what caused the uh, Iguyan to bring the Pied Piper into this work was... The realization that in the Pied Piper poem, there's this one boy with who's on crutches who can't walk fast enough, and so he gets left out. He's not brought into the cave. If you don't know the Pied Piper story, I'm kind of I guess I've been assuming most people know it, but uh, just briefly, it's where this Piper comes to town to chase out all the rats. The townspeople hire him after he uh, plays his magic flute, and all the rats jump in the river. He asks for his money and they all turn him like, well, what are you going to do about it? And so he plays the flute again and takes all of their children away. They all follow him. And they, the parents can't move. They can only watch in horror as they go off into this cave where this portal kind of opens up and closes behind them. So there's one little boy left behind and he's always sad because he didn't go to go off with his friends. And of course, in this film, there's the one character who survives who is... Uh, now injured for life where she's in this wheelchair of the children she's the only survivor and of course you would almost think that russell banks wrote the book like how can i kind of update the pied piper motif and flesh it out into the psychological drama but no this was something the director actually brought in that already fit this character that banks had created which is kind of amazing so for me personally i've just always been intrigued by this story by that ambivalence that ambiguity about is this a happy thing or a sad thing that the kids are going away? And I remember actually when I was really little, when I was, and actually I can tell you it was exactly, it was my fourth birthday. And uh, I was having a party in the afternoon. And that morning I watched a Saturday morning cartoon or some special where they, they told the whole Pied Piper story. And I was so upset at the end that all the children were taken from their parents that I told my parents I didn't want to have my birthday party. I guess I was very sensitive in some ways. Um, and particularly when it came to fairy tales, I remember having nightmares about Hansel and Gretel as well, but that's a story for another day. But then later on, when I wrote a screenplay for like a film, um, not something that was shot, but just writing the screenplay as an exercise, it was a telling of the Pied Piper story set in like a Latin American military dictatorship operating on a similar idea. Uh, and, uh, it's just always, so I've always been drawn to this story. So seeing it used again in this, I, I was surprised that I forgot it actually. It works for the accident, this idea of all the children being taken away, obviously by this bus accident. It works in a way for, uh, Mitchell and his situation, both with his daughter and with this community that he's preying upon in a way 
where uh, he's going around demanding or telling the people that he's going to give them something because the way he approaches this is it's more like a salesman. Like he goes to them, he tells them, oh, you're, I'll be a channel for your anger. I'll be a channel for your grief. He gets all worked up about it. Uh, actually says not for your grief, just for your anger. Someone else will have to deal with the grief, but I can express your anger. I only take a third after we settle out of court and or after we're awarded by a jury, not settling out of court. So he has that kind of Pied Piper quality to him, this sense of a threat that maybe Nicole gets from him thinking, what is he taking from us when he does this as well? But also Mitchell with his daughter, the idea that somehow he was not a good enough parent, he somehow betrayed some sort of trust, and uh, she's turned towards drugs. That's her Pied Piper as a way of sort of punishing him. On the subject of the Mitchell's daughter, there's a, a really striking story that he tells in the film, I think around the halfway point, that we mostly just hear him say, although we do get a little bit of a flashback of the image of the daughter on his lap as he's holding her in a car, uh, which is that he and his wife and his daughter, when they were all still close, and you know he's now divorced as well as being estranged from his daughter, they were staying at this old place, really remote, in uh, I think North Carolina or somewhere like that, and the daughter started swelling up, and he called the doctor 40 miles away and found out that the reaction she was having meant there must have been a nest of uh, baby black widows in the mattress. Just this horrifying image, and that if it was not babies, she would be dead, so it must have been babies. And he had like an hour to get her to the hospital 40 miles away or something, and he had to take a small knife with him to perform an emergency uh trachectomy or whatever the operation is is uh, called if need be and so he's taking her with him and you know i'm not doing it justice the way it's described in the film but i'm just trying to be brief because it's a long story and very involved and it's just this powerful image both the image of plants in your head and even that image of the daughter there lying with the knife next to him and he says something that to me it called to mind actually uh, the Leland Bob idea and really more the idea of Leland having the loving father and the Bob monster inside of him. Although in this case, both of the, the, the halves of what uh, Mitchell's doing are, you know, noble in some way because if he's cutting the daughter, it's to rescue her. But still, I mean, you have that image, the father with the knife with the daughter, it's definitely calls to mind Twin Peaks. And his quote is, I was divided into two parts. One part was daddy singing a lullaby for his little girl, and the other part was the surgeon with a knife ready to cut into her throat. It's just this kind of shocking, powerful image at the center of this film. Totally divorced from the bus accident and all the stuff happening with that. It's to do with the protagonist in his own personal history. And in uh, the, the author Russell Banks describes this as uh, fission in the nuclear family, which certainly calls to mind a lot about Twin Peaks, both the fission and the nuclear family part. And it actually reminds me that there are people who read part eight as a kind of a metaphor for the destruction of the Palmer family in some in some sort of literally explosive way. Uh, this idea of Leland's abuse and it's, it's a sort of unnatural act shattering what is supposed to be this this kind of core unit of society in some way. So there's all of those elements, but the way that the film expresses the Pied Piper most directly and, and explicitly. This is something that Nicole herself brings up in the editor of the, the the editing of the film, Hammer's Home, is the point where this relates most closely to Twin Peaks, which is that Nicole is a victim of incest. 
and that in fact the climax of the film which is about the deposition to get this lawsuit going for this for this accident actually revolves around her personal trauma and and her expression of it in a way that actually no pun intended derails the entire bus accident lawsuit so that's a fascinating element to this uh, that this film has a Laura Palmer who is part of this tragedy, but it's the survivor rather than the dead who's the Laura in this story. It also calls to mind, of course, the things that Sarah Pauly herself has uh, talked about and written about abusive men in the film industry. She wrote a whole piece following Harvey Weinstein's uh, scandal, which I'll link in the show notes, which is really powerful to that effect. So playing this theme at the outset of her career, which she returned to both in you know reality and I believe in some of her later work as well, which I haven't seen as much of because uh, she's gone on to be a filmmaker. The way that it unfolds in this film is we meet her father early on and he's watching her perform where it's like this very Lilith Fair type of performance at the town fair and he's very admiring and she, she really wants to please him and is is embracing him. And then later we see them at night, he's taking her to this barn where he's going to supposedly build her a stage. And she's sort of hesitant. She follows him in and we see a shot of all these candles splayed about. And he's kind of leaning in to kiss her or something there. It's a very, I don't know if subtle is exactly the right word, but other than the concept of what it's showing, the way it's executed, they don't lean into the disturbing aspect of the incest here. Uh, And actually, I remember seeing the film for the first time after reading the book, my memory of how the the book and the movie differed actually was kind of warped in, a, in an interesting way I'll talk about when I talk about the ending of this film. But at the time, having just read the book, I was a little bit dismayed when I saw the sequence like, oh, okay, are they like soft peddling? What? Because in the book, it's much more um, explicit how upsetting and traumatizing this this is for her, this this abuse from her father. And in the movie, he comes off as more of like this loving guy and oh, is this some weird, like, you know, she's, is the film trying to tell us that she's like, okay with this in some way? I just didn't know what to make of that scene. And then the way it pays off in the end is extraordinary. It's just really powerful. And in a way, actually, almost more powerful than in the book uh, for several reasons. I'm going to save that part for last, but I just, I want to, to mention that because there is that scene early on which establishes the incest in the film. You can sort of read it one way until the ending, I think. Also, though, it's interesting to note in both the book and the film, uh, people actually miss the incest. Like, they don't notice. In fact, people, after seeing the film, came to Russell Brooks. He says even friends of his who were, like, close and were he would think of were close readers said, the incest wasn't in the book, was it? And he was kind of shocked that people didn't remember it. And he actually reads... A whole passage. This was like a, a special feature on the DVD, like a talk that he and Adam Egeon did, and he actually reads the whole passage, and it's clear as day what he's describing, but for whatever reason, people just kind of glided past it and caught it in the film. But then the reverse has happened too. I read a piece in The Guardian where uh, the writer asserts that the film actually, uh, that, that she isn't abused in the uh, film, so that makes 
her final act much more ambiguous. And I was like, reading, really? How did you miss that? And and but Egrion has said as well. People have come up to him and said and it reminds me of things that uh, Martha Nockhamson, for example, has written about uh, Twin Peaks and Firewalk with Me, where there's something in people's minds that oftentimes, when confronted with a story about incest, if it's subtle at all, they can kind of glide right past or go around it in some way and focus on other elements of the story, even though it's so core and central to that story. So the way that uh, it's described in the book, not necessarily in the uh, movie, but there's certain passages which really call to mind Twin Peaks. I mean, for one thing, she talks about lying in bed, wondering how she could kill herself after encounters with her father saying, dying was the only way I could imagine the end of what I was doing with daddy, which is such a very like Laura Palmer kind of thing to think. Uh, She mentions taking pills like Marilyn Monroe, obviously a touchstone for uh, Lynch and perhaps Frost as well. And uh, then at other points, she says when time went by that it seems like she says, it seems like I only dreamed it, which is, again, something I think we find particularly in The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, uh, which, of course, is also a first-person account of abuse and the confusion surrounding it in an adolescent girl. So there's all of those elements there on the page. And then in the film, the way that it's dealt with, uh, the 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 way that it becomes clear how she feel, feels about it is in that final scene. So now is the time to talk about how this film ends, what happens to the lawsuit. As I said, it's it's derailed uh, b- because of her testimony. So what she says in her testimony, up to this point, it's been suggested she doesn't really know what happened. She's, she's lost her memory of the event. And so Mitchell thinks that's what she's going to say. She's just going to give some details about the uh, the incident. It's at near the end of the whole process. And then they'll have all of their accounts together. They can go forward with this this class action lawsuit against either the town or the bus manufacturer, whoever they can kind of pin to the wall for this. But she destroys that because she says, well, actually, she does remember now. And they were there was a dog that ran across the street and uh, the bus swerved to avoid it. And the bus was going too fast. It was going 70 miles per hour and there was nothing she could say or do to stop it. It all happened too quickly. And as she's saying this, she's staring right at her father. And this is something we don't get in the book. In the book, it's the dialogue. And then it comes back to like her and her father's interactions afterwards. You can take from it that she was speaking about him. But actually, I think when I read it, I didn't even get that. I just thought this is obviously a response to his abuse of her. And she's punishing him in a way because now he's not going to get money from this lawsuit that's something he wanted so she's she's kind of taking that away from him but I don't think it registered for me that when she's talking about things going too fast when she's talking about it getting out of hand she's talking about him she's talking about what happened between them and in the movie that comes through because of the pauses and the exchanges and her body language she's positioned towards him she's looking at him and it, and they, they even, you know, talking about the film, not quite being as subtle as the book in some ways, they even add a, a stanza to the Pied Piper poem, which isn't in there about my father's lips were as, as stunned or as silent as the, 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 the winter moon or something like that, where it's just making it in case, you know, in case you miss the point, they can afford to hammer it home, I think, because it's such a powerful sequence. The performances of all involved, particularly Sarah Pauly, and the fact that I had thought up to this point when I first saw the movie that it was kind of soft peddling the incest, when it hits you with this, I was, it really paid off in a way that I don't think it would have if it had been clear earlier in the film how upset she was about what was happening. 
between them. It's just really moving and really powerful. And you can go back and you can look at earlier parts of the film and see how it's there under the surface. Even the moment when he's the father has built her a new, a whole new bedroom, and uh, she is wheeled into it after her hospital stay and she says oh, i feel like a princess and then she hasn't put a lock on the door very much recalling both the fairy tale motif of the princess locked in the tower to keep out the ogre and all of that and the way that plays out in firewalk with me as well the way leland comes into the room and calls her princess when he's feeling more like the doting dad essentially this film was chosen for this uh, particular time i'm speaking to the patrons now because i'm premiering this in february of 2022 at the same time that I'm opening up my Firewalk with me, Lost in Twin Peaks podcast uh, to patrons. I feel both of these films in very different ways deal with both the ambiguity and the clarity surrounding, uh, I think, particularly like incest between a teenage daughter and her father. Because uh, in Twin Peaks, it's more, you know, it, it exists more on this kind of allegorical plane in a way because of the figure of Bob obviously much more so than in something like The Sweet Hereafter, but I think both films toy with this idea of the father conceiving this, you know, quote-unquote relationship as somehow like a consensual love affair or something. It's much more subtle and kind of off-screen in Twin Peaks, but there's elements of there, I think, uh, for example, when he says, I always thought you knew it was me. Well, what's the implication of that is that he thinks she's sort of in on the knowledge of it, that this is a secret they share. And they talk a lot about the secret in the book, The Sweet Hereafter, uh, how she now owns his secret now that the accident has happened somehow. There's a great interview with uh, with the actor who plays the father on the special features. Uh, it's actually not even an interview. It's like a 40-second Q&A, but something he said I thought was very profound and reminded me of at least how I read the Leland Laura thing of Firewalk with me, which is, uh, he says uh, he has a daughter who, speaking about his character, he has a daughter who grows up a lot more than he ever did or ever will, and she's the one who makes him actually confront this thing. And I just find that so profound because I think it's true of a lot of power dynamics, actually, not just a situation of incest where you have the person perpetrating it who almost thoughtlessly sometimes like just they have the power to be indifferent about the pain they're causing or to rationalize it in some ways. I think these characters do. It's not so much that they're indifferent. It's that they tell themselves a certain narrative. And Banks and Iguyan have talked about how the film is about a lawyer crafting a narrative as lawyers do and how ultimately this one survivor is able to take her own story, and in this case a story that her father, both the lawyer is telling about the accident and her father is telling about them, about him and her, and take it over and make it her own story. And in the case of the bus, that's an, it's a lie, what she tells, that the bus driver, and in a dangerous lie in a way, because it could actually damage the bus driver's reputation, she's telling a lie about the accident in order to tell a truth just between her and her father that no one else will understand. And that's why it's such, a, such an incredible moment, because uh, you see that the repository of all the pain and all of the suffering that caused by by this abuse by this exercise of power isn't really felt at the source until this moment until he's forced to confront it with his daughter looking directly at him but she and laura in twin peaks have to hold all this in themselves and i think that's so often the case i mean again broadly globally societally where the victims of the powerful 
bear all this burden and the powerful, it's it's like they don't even exist to them necessarily. Now, the film ends with this incredible shot of uh, Sarah Pauly closing the Pied Piper book as the kids go to sleep, walking out into the hallway, and these headlights are emerge in the uh, in in the driveway or just driving by on the road, I think where uh, she's kind of caught in it and the light drowns it out. It's this idea of going into the suite hereafter. And there's so much to say about this, which I want to end on. Uh, for one thing, just the whole metaphor throughout, the whole idea of these children, are these children gone into the suite hereafter? And she says, you know, in her ending narration, well, actually all of us are. The whole town is different now. I'm different. And Ebert, Roger Ebert wrote something about the film in his review, which in some ways misses a lot of things about the movie, I thought, although he had a great line about how the tragedy of the Pied Piper is not actually the missing children, but the survivor who's left behind, and how that is true of this film as well. But I think this is made fairly explicit in the film. As upset as she is about her own disability and the fact that she's now immobile and she's lost so many of her dreams... I think there's also a sense of relief in a way because she's now out of his grasp. She says in the book that now she she doesn't feel the same despair and wanting to die. She just feels an, an anger. It's a different sort of strong emotion. And the, in the near the end of the film, we see her kind of smiling in a way, looking with the, the Ferris wheel behind her where we first saw her and her father. And it seems like in a way she's found her something of a sweet hereafter. Laura had to die in her story. And in this story, Nicole doesn't have to die, but it may be in some ways in her drama, she has to lose something that she had to be freed from the more subtle secret pain that was tormenting her. And so there's that element of it there, that irony. And, and and as I was saying in Ebert's review, he says something about, well, maybe she just feels spurned now, which is kind of an awful thing to say, and implies that now her life is over. She feels she has nothing left to live for. And I just don't think that's necessarily true. I, I think there is an element of despair in it. But there's also something in the end that is transcendent for her just as much as with Laura, with the angel in the red room. And there's also something about this ending that I just find so evocative because it's transforming this story of this whole communal tragedy, this bus accident, this this social event into like a psychological thing for this this person. It's almost as if she's told this whole story as a way of expressing her own personal uh, uh, trauma. Uh, this idea of a grand drama as a projection of a personal psychodrama, the public town tragedy as a metaphor for her, her secret personal life. And, uh, you know, I think we see this in Twin Peaks with, again, with the Laura stuff, but with the little girl, even with the frog bug, I, when I saw that in part eight, I thought, in a way, I almost thought, what if she's the one dreaming Twin Peaks in some way to explain something that's happened to her? Uh, there's there's just this idea, who is the dreamer, you know, that idea. And I never take it as a literal dreamer. I know some people hate that idea of like, oh, it's a Wizard of Oz thing. But just the idea of like, whose psychological terrain are we on here? And for Twin Peaks, I think it's it's always Laura. And I think in this film, as central as Mitchell is to it, and I should note, by the way, at the end, it's kind of implied that his daughter has died. That, that woman he's talking to on the whole airplane ride, he gets upset whenever she asks him kind of how she's doing. And uh, I, I get the sense that that's probably something that's happened to him. So there's a parallel there too. But I think even as important as Mitchell and all of this is, in a way, this is, if he's the Cooper of this, Nicole is the Laura, 
and she's the one who ultimately this this story belongs to. And by the way, the idea of a vehicular accident as the expression of a personal psychological trauma is very much something present in Lynch as well. You see it explicitly in Mulholland Drive, where when he offered clues, he said, pay attention to the location of the accident, the idea being that the real event that's haunting Diane Selwyn uh, is displaced into this accident in the earlier part of the film. So basically, the place where she is humiliated becomes the scene of a fiery car accident. And then in Twin Peaks, The Return, where the little boy is hit by the hit-and-run driver, that takes place at the intersection where Laura and Leland are confronted with their relationship, where Gerard is yelling at them, it's him, it's your father. It's the same location there as well. So you have that idea, and I think you see it in Sweet Hereafter as well. So that's why I want to end with this quote from Diane Stevenson about Twin Peaks and Firewalk With Me, which I think applies to Sweet Hereafter if you look at it through a certain lens, especially that fairy tale lens where she closes the book at the end and walks into the light. Diane Stevenson writes, What is distinctive about Twin Peaks is the way it connects all sexuality and violence to the abuse of a daughter by a father in a middle-class home. It's as if every person in town were but a part of a multiple personality generated by that abuse, as if not just an individual, but a society had been formed in that incestuous cradle. It's dull in our town since my playmates left. I can't forget that I'm bereft of all the pleasant sights they see, which the piper also promised me. In a town where no one is a stranger, in a place where everyone feels like family, something has happened that will change their lives forever. I'm really sorry to come over unannounced like this, but it is important that we talk. I'm a lawyer. Do you hear about the accident? As far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as an accident. Oh, jeez. Now, one man must find the truth. We must begin our investigation quickly. Things get covered up. People lie. We're not country bumpkins. You can put the big city hustle on. You're angry, Mr. Ansel. All I'm saying is, let me direct your rage. But who can you trust? when everyone has a secret. No matter what I'm asked, I'll tell the truth. It's not gonna be easy, Nicole. I won't lie. Who can you blame when no one is innocent? There's people pointing fingers and making side deals. We used to help each other, because this was a community. Oh God, I'm scared. You leave the people of this town alone. You can't help. You can help each other. advanced and the children followed they were all citizens of a different town now a town of people living in the sweet hereafter from acclaimed director adam agoyan the sweet hereafter that's it for this episode one of the longer ones but there was a lot to say 
And uh, the next episode is going to conclude this traumatic transformation series with a film that often gets brought up with Firewalk Me, including by its uh, filmmaker as well. So here is a clip from Mysterious Skin to take us out. Tonight on World of Mystery, we investigate the terrifying world of UFOs. I think I was taken too. I keep a log of all my dreams. Someone else is with me. Another boy. You're on your way to uncovering the truth. Maybe concentrate on that other boy in your dreams. He could help you find the answers you're looking for. I know all Neil's secrets. And there's shit there you don't even want to know about, trust me. I'm looking for an Ann McCormick. 